Sinescapades, where we talk about the month that we are currently going into chronologically on our journey to get through all, however many there are Super Nintendo games. There's a lot of them. There are. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Yeah, this is the first time we're trying this, trying this new format. We're going to be talking about the month of January 1993. We're going to be talking about the Nintendo Power issue that came out that month and uh, some other things. So, um... Yeah, it feels like we've been in December 92 for a long time, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. It feels like we've been there forever, and um, I am I am personally very happy to be free of it. Same here. There were a few bright spots in December 92, but for the most part, that was kind of a, kind of a downer month for the Super Nintendo library. It was. As we are finally into a new month, I guess that means we get to welcome back our old friend, Newsy! It's January 1993! A live hits theaters this month and goes on to gobble up over 36 million at the box office. Uh, I'm being told that the pun that I just used may have been in bad taste. Oh, and that one too, I guess. Is it March yet? Nope. Then Whitney Houston is still number one on Billboard's Hot 100. And for the first time, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a holiday that was signed into law in 1983, is recognized in all 50 states. Back to you, Emmy Zero and Steampunk Link! Thank you, Newsy. Alive. That sure was a movie that came out. That makes it sound like it was a bad movie. I, I've actually never seen it. I don't know if it was a bad movie. Uh, I don't. I don't know either. Like just looking at like the people who made it, who were like involved in it, it feels like it was probably kind of like the sort of like Oscar baity, very serious drama for adults sort of thing. What would have been like very successful and well liked at the time, and then leave very little in the way of cultural impressions afterwards probably if not for the fact it was about you know a a horrible incident that actually happened where uh, a group of people ended up having to do what they did in that movie to survive um i think the the kind of shocking nature of the stuff the movie you know depicted probably gave it a little bit more in the way of like a cultural like footprint than it would have had otherwise but i haven't seen the movie so i don't i don't actually know it's it's probably fine it's probably a well-made movie yeah it's probably fine i do know that for years after this any time the conversation of cannibalism came up in any context, somebody would almost always ask, oh, did you guys ever see a live? Yeah, I know there were definitely jokes about it on The Simpsons. I imagine there were probably like Saturday Night Live sketches about it. You know, uh, I I think these days we're kind of back to to mostly talking about the Donner Party when we talk about cannibalism. But yeah, for a while, Alive was absolutely one of the main touchstones for it. So other than that, we have uh, Whitney Houston still at number one. She She's going to be there for a little bit longer. Yeah. Good. Good. It's a good song. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, first time it was recognized, kind of. I didn't really know like how recently Martin Luther King Day actually was. It always just seemed like one of those things that just has kind of been around for a long time. But in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty recent. And... Also, it's not really as simple as like this being the first time it was recognized in all 50 states. I think this was the first time in which there was a federal holiday around this time. 
and most states recognized it as Martin Luther King Day, but some others called it something else. And even to this day, like it gets grouped in with other days in certain states. Idaho apparently calls it Martin Luther King Day, Idaho Human Rights Day, which, um, okay. Okay. Uh, other states have less noble things attached to it, like Martin Luther King Day, Robert E. Lee's birthday, which, yeah, those two things share a holiday in Alabama, Arkansas, and Mississippi, and, uh... Blah. No. Bad. Those are states run by garbage people, and honestly, someone should probably just step in and say, like, you know what? Until, like, these states can be governed by grown-ups, we're, we're just gonna take over. No more Confederate monuments. No more Confederate holidays. And, uh, oh, hey, look at that. The crybaby alarm's going off because people are getting butthurt about... Uh, oh, there's politics happening. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, because nothing's ever political. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. Holidays aren't political. That's why we have Christopher Columbus Day as one of them. <laughs> we are here to talk about January 1993. Specifically, we are going to be doing a deep dive into the Nintendo Power issue. This was a really big one because I think this might have been the first big bonus issue that Nintendo Power did that would become a tradition every January that would only be available to people subscribed to the magazine. So either uh, these magazines would not be available just to, to buy on newsstands like regular issues of Nintendo Power would be, or if they were, the ones available on newsstands were very different and, and didn't have as many features as these did. I definitely remember getting this issue and being pretty excited about it because it was so much bigger than the typical issue and it had a lot of stuff that I was really interested in. Like there's a whole Mario Paint extra feature in here. There's a lot of Mega Man stuff and I was still really big into Mega Man back then. Yeah, I guess we will get into all of that. There, there is some really cool stuff in here. And yeah, I probably mentioned this on the show before, but I wasn't really a, a Nintendo Power kid. Uh, I read a lot of video game magazines, but uh, not this one. But I've been trying to sort out kind of why that is, but I, I think it was just mostly down to, for one thing, me not being a 100% pure, like, Nintendo fan. Like, I, I had a Sega Genesis and a Game Gear for a long time, and, you know, I wanted to read stuff about those games as well. And also just, I think, kind of missing this. Like, I, I didn't really know anybody who read this one, so it wasn't ever a thing that I was super, you know, envious of, which definitely would have made me uh, want to get a subscription to it. So it's cool uh, reading it now and like kind of looking back and seeing all this stuff. And I, I would have thought this was really cool when I was a kid, especially some of the stuff uh, that you mentioned, like the Mario Paint section and also these like extensive walkthroughs of games that are in here, like basically like mini strategy guides. Yeah, Nintendo Power was great with that sort of thing. Like one thing that really sticks out in my mind was the um, Super Mario Brothers 2 super power tip books that were included in some of their early issues. Really, really great art in those, and also just like a, a complete walkthrough of Super Mario 2 with great screenshots all laid out as full maps of all the levels. And yeah, it was something Nintendo Power was really well known for, and they just laid all this stuff out beautifully. Despite the flaws that we will talk about with this magazine, it really was very well laid out and, and very colorful. I think I got into this magazine because before I went back to public school I, I did a few years at a private school where we didn't have buses so everybody would just have to carpool and so I was 
carpooling with older kids who were showing me like their issues of Nintendo Power. Uh, some of them were like in the whole Nintendo Power culture, even before it was a magazine, back when it was just a newsletter. I kind of got hooked on all that stuff just from seeing the issues that they would bring. So I, I think, you know, I, I asked my parents if I could subscribe too, and they were like, well, yeah, it's a magazine and we, we want to encourage you to read more. So sure. And as a result, I, you know, I ended up with a subscription to this and I subscribed for a long time. I subscribed well into the GameCube era. Probably by the GameCube era, it was probably a little more like a traditional video game magazine. I'm just guessing. But yeah, at this point, it is really this very bespoke premium feeling kind of celebration of Nintendo with like, lots of stuff that that feels really made just for the magazine you know art and these cool full images of entire stages from things like the magical quest starring mickey mouse lots of really good good stuff in here that i think adds value to it beyond just whatever it has to say about the games themselves i guess we'll kind of get started one big thing that was different about this issue was uh, right on the cover. The cover was like this big fold-out thing where uh, on one side you had Mickey Mouse uh, hosing down the evil Emperor Pete, and on the other side you've got something very strange. (laughs) What did you you think about this weird quasi-I-Spy kind of game in which they've set up a really trashy out there teenagers room teenager whose parents are loaded by the way because they've got their own like computer and tv in their room like we didn't have that stuff as a kid oh yeah this kid's got an armchair to sit in to play his games on uh you know it's loads of stuff that looks like comes from like spencer's gifts (laughs) you know lots of lots of stuff here this honestly felt really kind of nostalgically 90s for me yes like this feels uh almost more like like the kind of like the play it loud era of nintendo than than anything else in this magazine which is interesting because that's still a little ways away but yeah this feels so much like what i remember like kind of like commercials and like media depictions of like cool teenagers and cool teen life in the 90s being like so yeah no i i was sort of surprised to see it here but i i really liked it uh that kid needs to clean his dang room though but the whole thing with this is that there are references to a bunch of different games that they list on the side of the page and you're supposed to sort of look through this image which isn't easy to do, and it might just be the scans that we have of these things now. It's really it's really blurry. I remember that kind of being a problem even with the original magazine. Like the the photograph or you know, it has a very washed out sort of look to it. It almost looks like a watercolor or something. Like it's really indistinct in places. Like it's kind of a strange choice for for like you said, essentially an I spy game to to have this sort of sort of feel to it. The other thing about this is that I don't know how well conceived the game aspect of this is because some of the references are pretty obvious. Like, okay, there's a, there's actually a copy of the hunt for red October, the book lying on the floor to reference the hunt for red October, but other things like clue, apparently there's a magnifying glass somewhere in there. And that's meant to be the reference. seems kind of vague. Um, I think like this pizza box is supposed to be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reference, even though it's like, come on, you couldn't have just put an action figure in there or something. There's a (laughs) bucket of toxic waste in this room. 
apparently meant to be a reference to the Toxic Crusaders. Okay. Yeah, they're not they're not great references, are they? But no, it, like the the game aspect of this feels very tacked on, but I I do think that the photograph is kind of neat. Very of its time and and yeah, just like taking a look at it again now, it it, it feels very like oh yeah, I remember this kind of stuff. This this was fun. This is fun. This is the first issue in which uh, the Super NES was more prominently featured than the NES. When you look at the table of contents here, the Super NES is on top, the NES is kind of on the bottom, and it's just sort of starting the shift to be more Super NES focused. But the NES wouldn't go away for a long time. I think we're still like two years out from the final NES game being released. This issue prominently features Mega Man 5. There would still be one more Mega Man game for the NES before they really kind of shifted gears and focused completely on the Super Nintendo, so... There's still some stuff here that still feels like the NES is, is, you know, a going concern, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's also some things about the Super Power Club. I'm not sure... If this was like the the debut of the Super Power Club concept, but basically Nintendo Power would release these catalogs where you could purchase merchandise that you typically couldn't get anywhere else. I've still got some of that stuff, actually, uh, here in my office. Uh, I've got like some Donkey Kong Country collectibles up on a shelf. They're made of that sort of um, rubber that over time starts to feel a little bit sticky on the outside you know what i'm saying like like it, it kind of starts breaking down yeah i do so that's kind of unfortunate yeah there's that there's like the, these trading cards that would actually be in the issues I, but you could buy like a whole set of like actually like properly made trading cards in that same style with like gold foil uh logos on them and stuff like that whereas the, the ones you would get in the magazine were, were kind of cheaper cardstock and just sort of, you know, punch out. So, you know, they'd be sort of perforated on the ends and a little bit rougher. We get your your player's pulse, your letters to the editor, all that, um, which is, you know, pretty standard for all the magazines. The art column, which is going to be a thing that's going to be going on for quite some time. And we know a little bit about this because these a lot of these envelopes are still hanging in big frames at Nintendo headquarters to this day because uh, we used to work in the building where they still had some of them hung up. Yeah, it was actually really cool. I loved seeing those. And I, I always was a fan of the art column or equivalent in games magazines where, you know, I think that that it was really just like one of the main ways that you could see like the way that other players were feeling about some of these games. So, you know, in this art column, we've got two different Battletoads pieces uh, which which is funny because there's not really any other like reference to Battletoads in this magazine. Like it just wasn't really quite the time. The original Battletoads had already come out, and we were still a little ways away, I think, from the Super Nintendo Battletoads game coming out. But they're they're still in here because you know this was this was a thing that was very much like one of the cool sort of later on NES you know games that people were were really into. Thing right here saying that these are the winning combinations of trading cards. So if you had gotten the combination of trading cards in the last issue that they displayed here, then you'd win some kind of prize or something. Speaking of winning prizes, we also see uh, somebody who won one of the players poll. I can't actually remember what they called it. We'll get to it. In any case, uh, this kid won a, an admittedly pretty cool looking Super Mario Brothers pinball machine. 
I I don't think I've ever seen before. I I don't think I have either. I can't imagine that an existent Super Mario Brothers pinball machine wouldn't be kind of a fairly famous one. But yeah, this kid, uh, this very, very 90s kid, uh, looks extremely happy to have won this thing. And uh, why why wouldn't they be? Yeah, I, I would be very happy to have won that too, probably. Until I find out how involved the maintenance is on one of these pinball machines. But Yeah, you gotta really love working on pinball machines to own a pinball machine, that's for sure. We get the masthead here, we get uh, the editor's corner, which uh, there's some interesting stuff in here. Uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the features that were dropped from the magazine as of this issue later on as, as we kind of get to sections relevant to those. But Gail Tilden, who was the editor-in-chief of Nintendo Power for a while, talks about the uh, departure George Sinfield, who was one of the people behind the section uh, now playing with George and Rob. And uh, George and Rob, uh, Rob was Rob Noel. Uh, they were both members of the game evaluation team. Rob was more in the marketing side of things. I don't know if he had any involvement with the magazine specifically, except for that feature, which would explain why his name is not in the masthead anymore in this one. George Sinfield, however, uh, apparently left Nintendo to join THQ at this point. Oddly enough, his name is still in the masthead. So I, I, he, I think, was a just a staff writer as well as doing that specific feature for Nintendo Power. So he might have written something else in the magazine before he left that ended up here. One thing that kind of disappoints me about this magazine is that other than that, you know, George and Rob section, there really wasn't a lot of attribution to specific aspects of the magazine. Um, in particular, one thing that disappoints me is that we don't see individual artists credited for their work throughout the pages here. We get a list of illustrators in the masthead, but with the exception of the Super Mario comic, which we'll get into, I can't really specifically pinpoint, you know, like which artists worked on what features, uh, which is kind of a shame. Yeah, it is kind of a shame because the art, I think, is one of the most distinctive and kind of one of the coolest things about this magazine you know there's there's a lot of art and a lot of it is pretty clearly just made for for these layouts and and for for these things here so yeah no uh i i wish that it was easier to kind of pinpoint who did what for sure yeah exactly after that we kind of jump into the magazine's first big feature and it's its cover feature which was uh the magical quest starring mickey mouse which is a game we talked about not too long ago on the show like you were saying before there's just really great screenshots here a lot of screenshots uh arranged into maps of the entire of entire levels which is neat the art here is really good too i think that there's two different art styles happening there's the more flat style which is basically like a bunch of pictures of mickey mouse and a few of like pluto and goofy i think those are more stock disney assets that they were probably allowed to use for the purposes of this feature but other characters like a lot of the bosses the wizard who appears in the game those have a much more uh sort of shaded style that almost look like they were kind of done in colored pencil i would bet those were actually done by nintendo power staff illustrators that that makes sense to me because like there's some of these things here that are definitely sort of like an attempt to like redraw and embellish the sprites from the games and, and yeah like they look really good and they do certainly look different than like there's this image of pluto that i feel like i've seen so many times in different like disney related things uh you know and, and like there's a really clear contrast between 
how that looks and how the the images of like these bosses look. Also, the pictures of Mickey in his different costumes, something a little bit weird and off about them, like the the firefighter costume. And, and maybe it's just um, the way the magazine was printed or the way it was scanned for these scans that we're looking at. I don't know. But like in the firefighter costume, the firefighter costume looks like it's more vivid than Mickey himself. Like it was just sort of pasted on after the fact. Yeah, you're right, actually. I do kind of wonder if they had like a stock Mickey head. That they just slapped onto all of these original drawings of the the different costumes. Possibly. Cause I, I mean, I wonder how much leeway Disney would have given to publications to draw Mickey Mouse themselves. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, looking through these, as we've been playing a lot of these games and, and just kind of thinking to myself, like, wow, how did I ever get through a game like this? back in the day things like this were probably how i got through a lot of my games like finding out the little secrets and stuff through magazines like this because you know, even looking at this i'm kind of thinking i probably would have had an easier time getting going with this game when i played it to talk about for the show if i had been consulting this magazine and that's something i'm gonna have to probably think about in the you know as, as we continue <laughs> on and it's kind of nice because this is almost a full walkthrough of that game, but it largely is there to like give you the push you need to to get through it, you know? It's not so detailed that it's just walking you through every single step of every stage, and it actually stops at uh the the second to last stage, but like I know that stuff like this was really valuable to me when I was a kid playing playing games like this. But yeah, I, I think this probably does the kind of like mini strategy guide thing better than a lot of game magazines and game guides back then did. But yeah, so that's Mickey Mouse. Uh, that one ends with a with a fold-out spread of the last couple levels, and on the other side we get a poster, which is something we got in pretty much every issue of Nintendo Power. Uh, this one features the Ren and Stimpy show. Specifically, it's kind of a big ad for the THQ game. Yeah. That that would be coming out. I mean, it's not really an ad. It's just like a fun picture of Ren and Stimpy, and it, it does mention that there is a game coming, but I think mostly you would just want it because it's a picture of them. Uh, I'm going to say, like, I, a lot of these posters around this time I find pretty disappointing now. It's, it's just, you know, stock image of Ren and Stimpy that, again, they probably got from Viacom or Nickelodeon or whoever. In the really early days of Nintendo Power, like in the very first issue, there was a poster sort of advertising the NES baseball game. And it was just it was wild. It was drawn by uh, one of the illustrators for the magazine whose name escapes me right now, but he was actually credited specifically for the poster in the masthead. And that artist's name was Kaz Aizawa. Kaz Aizawa. It was just wild. It's like baseball stadium, the batter's hitting the ball, he's holding a giant licorice whip instead of a baseball bat. There's like a bat signal in the air for some reason. There's just all this weird stuff happening. Those early posters were just really imaginative. And I feel like what we get with the posters more often than not is, you know, especially when they're based on previously existing licenses, which I mean, honestly, I think a lot of them are going to be. It's not anything interesting or original. It, it's just previously existing assets. It's just kind of there, yeah. There, there's always such a focus on the, the video game aspect, which for a lot of these posters is the least interesting thing about the franchise, <laughs> that it, it kind of, you know, mars what could have been cool about just getting a Ren and Stimpy poster. 
No, it's funny, actually, because when I first was reading through this issue, I didn't realize that this was a poster. I was just like, why is there one ad in this magazine and it's for that game? Like, I didn't think Nintendo Power had ads, but it's got like a full page ad for this Ren and Stimpy game. And then I realized what it was. And I was like, oh, okay, that's strange, but I get it now. Yeah, uh, that one you talked about for the the baseball game, it, that is a crazy piece of art. I love it so much. And I do wish that more of them going forward were going to be like that. But, you know, this this magazine does seem to have, as part of its sort of relentless positivity about all things Nintendo, it does seem to want to, like, really promote any kind of games based on big licenses that would have been popular with, with the audience back then. So not a huge surprise that they're doing stuff like that, but it is sort of, it feels like kind of a waste of space. You raise a good point. Like the magazine didn't have ads at this point. They would have ads later on, but that wouldn't be for a number of years. This basically is an ad. Yeah, it is. I wish that Nintendo Power could have had some kind of stipulation of like, hey, if you want us to feature your game, your upcoming game based on a license and a poster, You have to let our illustrators do a unique take on the franchise or on the characters or whatever and, you know, make something more unique and creative, at least to advertise the games. Because what this is just feels really kind of crass and commercial in a way that like for a magazine that is, again, completely Nintendo advertising and propaganda feels like a very creative endeavor. This feels really lifeless and crass in a way that the rest of the magazine kind of manages to not feel you know it'll be interesting as we go through more of these issues and kind of talk about posters because i do think that a lot of them are going to feature licensed characters for upcoming games i i remember that being a pretty big thing but uh we'll, we'll see if there's any of them that aren't that moving on we get uh shanghai 2 or uh, dragon's eye shanghai 2 which is basically the uh mahjong game for the super nes there's a pretty valid effort here to explain the game of mahjong to people that are totally unfamiliar with it and i appreciate that it's it doesn't feel so simplified that it's like talking down to the kids reading the magazine but it's clear enough that i think you could get started with it sort of based on this explanation we have not covered dragon's eye shanghai 2 yet i'm not entirely sure when this one actually ends up coming out um some of the games that get previewed or talked about nintendo power don't end up coming out for a long time afterward and we will get to one of those uh, today in fact some of them that they cover never even came out but this one did come out i don't think we're gonna have to wait too long before we have a chance to talk about shanghai 2 but um, I don't think it actually ends up coming out in January, if memory recalls. There's um, there's a cool drawing of a dragon uh, on one of the pages. It, this is a pretty short feature. It, it honestly seems kind of remarkable whenever we get any of the Mahjong games over here. Uh, because, you know, there are a lot of these that get made for really all, you know, Japanese consoles. And very few of them actually end up coming out in the West, so... Yeah, that one did, though. Then we move on to another uh, kind of short feature, but one with a lot more art around it. Sonic Blast Man, which um, the illustrator for this one has a very unique style. I don't know if I'm completely crazy about it. It looks a little bit wonky, but it's also very reminiscent of like some certain 90s comics from back in the day. I will say it's very of its time, and it makes me kind of nostalgic. It's it's kind of like low-budget rob liefeld almost not even rob liefeld this is like bazooka joe right here (laughs) yeah well i guess that's what i mean by like low budget like it looks like somebody 
making like a very cheap imitation of a superhero in a style that would have been popular back then. So, you know, there's like the dude, he looks kind of like a football player. He's got some weird bands on his legs and arms and some armor that doesn't seem to really cover enough to be useful. He looks like he's got a tape deck on his chest. Like a cassette player or something. He does look like he has a tape deck on his chest. That is true. This one's very preview-y. We just kind of see like some screenshots of different levels. Uh, we don't get any maps here, but this is also a beat-em-up. I, I don't know how useful a map is in that sort of game. I think has considerably better art than that is the next one for Equinox. And this is actually the game I alluded to earlier. This game won't actually come out until I think November of 1994. So I have no idea what happened here. It's funny, like, I was looking at this and I was like, I don't remember this game at all. Like, when did this happen? This looks like something I should know about, but I guess that explains it, though, that it just comes out so much later that I probably kind of just missed it, honestly. But yeah, that's interesting, because clearly, based on the amount of promotion it has here, this definitely seems like something that they expected to be coming out fairly soon. Well, I mean, it shows up in the now playing saying that it's available in February of uh, 93. But I mean, like they missed that mark by over a year. Um, I looked up on Wikipedia to see if there was anything about some kind of troubled development of this game. And I, I didn't see anything. So I don't know what happened here. Yeah, it's a Sony ImageSoft game, apparently, according to the article here. And it looks really British to me. Like, it looks like a British, like, isometric platformer, but I guess it could be from Japan. I don't know would be the most likely thing to explain what happened to this game and why it was probably just sort of like, I'm guessing this was finished and then it was, like, put on the shelf for, like, a year and a half. Or maybe the localization just took a long time? I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure when this came out in Japan, but... I don't know. When we finally get to Equinox, we'll probably do a little bit more research. We'll see if we can find out anything more about uh, why this game took so long to come here. And yet, this does look like a very British game. Specifically, this looks like an early Rare game. Like, I, I half expected to see Rare in the copyright here, because this looks like an isometric action RPG in the same vein of, like, uh, what was that game called? Saberwolf, I think? Yeah, it looks it looks a lot like Saberwolf. That's exactly what I was thinking of when... Uh when I saw this. You know, like the Commodore or the ZX Spectrum, maybe? I can't remember exactly which uh, computer system that came out on, but I really like the the look of the little dude here, uh, whatever his name is. Apparently this game is a sequel to a game called Solstice that came out on the NES, which is another game I'm not terribly familiar with. The magazine goes pretty in-depth here. We get maps, we get strategies, so uh, you know, at least part of this game was real close to being done, so I, I yeah, it's, it's really confusing as to what mm -hmm. happened. Yeah, look forward to that a long, long time from now. A few hundred episodes from now. Then we get the sports pages where they have tried to cram a lot of sports into here. And, and I kind of appreciate the presentation of this. I like that they've just kind of put all of this into its own little digest because I, I imagine I probably wasn't the only kid who was not quite as interested in the sports aspect of video games. Like we were probably into video games because we were not as into sports as a lot of other kids, right? Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's a, a reasonable assumption for a lot of folks. And you know, it's actually funny. 
uh, just to give myself some additional context for this time period, I tried to find a different video game magazine from around this time to kind of page through to see sort of how how some of this stuff was being talked about elsewhere. And the issue of GamePro that I found from October 92 has a sports section that is set up really similarly to this. You're, it's just like a digest with like a paragraph about all these different sports games. Just sort of divided up by type of sport. Definitely makes me feel good about how we've decided to do sports games on this show going forward. Because it's like, yeah, I think everyone pretty much came to the same conclusion that there's not really a ton to say about a lot of the individual sports games. Yeah, sounds like that was as true today as it was back then, actually. Uh, another thing I like about this is the sort of uh, almost Mad Magazine-esque parody ads on some of these pages. Yeah, I like that too. Some other highlights here. We've got NHL PA Hockey 93, which we've talked about. David Crane's Amazing Tennis, which we talked about. Jimmy Connors Tennis. Best of the Best, which is kind of a surprise to see in here it's i guess it's loosely a sports title it's more of like an actual karate championship game than just like a pure fighting game i guess so i can kind of see it i was a little surprised too yeah they do they do mention the secret kumite though then we get the baseball page here which has the headline cal ripkin's big d yeah that that sure is what it says Big old, you know, bold type face, Cal Ripken's big D right at the top of this page. And what makes this even more hilarious is that I don't actually know what that D should stand for. No, me either. The article talks about double plays. So maybe that, maybe because baseball diamond, maybe it's supposed to stand for diamond. I don't know, but like, it is not very clear what the D stands. I don't think we were saying like D is a euphemism for what it's a euphemism for today, but no. that's an unfortunate headline in retrospect. I really wish now that we had gotten a game called Cal Ripken's Big D. You are right, though. I don't think people were using it euphemistically that way back then. So this probably had like a very, a very easily comprehensible and, and obvious meaning to people who were like interested enough in sports that this section would have been of of you know, great value to them. Um, in any case, we move on to Firepower 2000, which is a game I feel like we covered a lifetime ago at this point. So one thing I do want to mention about this whole magazine is that, and, and I'm just kind of trying to kind of remembering like what it was like when all video game information and news came from magazines that were published once a month. This magazine did make me feel kind of weirdly unstuck in time a little bit because it, it talks about a lot of games that to me feel really old from like where we are at in the chronology of the Super Nintendo from our show. And also some stuff that's not out yet that it's talking about like it's already available. So yeah, it's this weird thing where like there's not really kind of the like sort of of the moment feel to it that I kind of expect from video game coverage now. And yeah, Firepower 2000 seems real old to me at this point. Also, the, the art style for this one, this I really can't peg if it's uh, Nintendo Power Illustrators did this or if this w was previously existing assets for something else, like maybe an instruction manual had these. I'm not entirely sure because it's there's a, a shading and detail to these that doesn't line up with the art in a lot of the other features of this magazine. But I could be wrong. It almost feels reminiscent of the metallic shaded art that Nintendo Power produced for a Mega Man 3 feature quite a few issues back that I still really, really like. So maybe it was 
the same artist who did those for all I know. I'm not sure. Again, because they don't credit the artist, we can't know. <laughs> I know, it's frustrating. Uh, one of these days, I'm just going to do a real deep dive, just go through all these magazines and like look for the old posters that were obviously drawn by Nintendo Power artists that they credited specifically in those magazines' mastheads and then see if I can like actually match up art styles. I don't know. That'll, that will probably be an entire day of investigation, but I, I will I will see if I can get to the bottom of this. I'm really, actually, really excited to, to see what you come up with from that whenever you do decide to do that. It takes some investigation, but the, the, the art is afoot. <laughs> Then we move on to my favorite feature from back in the day, classified information. This was always the first thing that I looked for every time. I wanted to see if any games that I was playing right now had any new codes or cheats or whatever. So I would always flip right to classified information, first thing I would ever do. And uh, this one's got some cool ones. It's got Star Wars. Um, a really cool thing that I saw for Rival Turf where you can actually rename all of the enemy characters. That is really cool. Yeah, no, I love sections like this. I love cheat codes, and I loved finding just, like, some weird thing you could do in one of these games to just sort of break it open. So, yeah, I was always a big fan of cheat code sections in, in magazines like this one. The Rival Turf thing is especially cool because it's so different from what I would expect to find in here. You know, usually these codes are about skipping levels or giving yourself extra life or super-powered weapons or something. Like, being able to just rename the the enemies is, is so fun and different. It's cool. Maybe if we get, like, a really big audience and we do a Patreon and all that, we'll say, like, well, we're going to do a, a bonus stream once all this COVID stuff is over with. For people who are, like, at the top of the Patreon, we're going to stream us playing Rival Turf, and you get your name as one of the bad guys if you're a top-tier patron or something. I don't want to promise anything, because I, I have no way of knowing, like, first of all, how long COVID's going to go on, and second of all, if we're ever going to get to that point. But anyway, then we get Counselor's Corner, which was another pretty fun feature where readers could write into the magazines and game counselors would give some detailed explanations, and, and some of those would get featured in the magazine proper. I actually wrote to Counselor's Corner once, and I asked for help with Spider-Man and the X-Men and Arcade's Revenge. My stuff was not featured in the magazine, but I did get a, a nice letter back from Nintendo Power, and they explained how to beat the levels that I was stuck on. So Very nice. Yeah, neat stuff. Specifically with the Soul Blazer tips here, the first two things that they answer here are actually things that I had trouble with when I was playing the game. So these seem like really solid tips to be giving people. Yeah, and I think RPGs and games like that that were a lot more involved were heavily featured in these articles because, yeah, there was just so much minutia that you could dive into, very specific things that players would probably get stuck on. So, yeah, it's not surprising at all to see things like Final Fantasy 2 and Soul Blazer represented here. Um, we also get the Empire Strikes Back for the NES. Yeah, it looks like the NES version. So another thing that they do in these magazines, they kind of color code the systems. Super Nintendo is represented by this sort of green tealish color, I guess you would call it. The NES is in red and the uh, Game Boy is in purple. Then we move on to Mario versus Wario, a comic that's adorable and, and this is also sort of like the last remnant of something that was running throughout the magazine the previous year. 
which was uh, comics based on Super Mario World and The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Those comics are very, very good. I think they've both been collected in, into uh, bound volumes that are, I think, still available somewhere. I think that those two comics are by far, by miles, the best adaptations of either of those two properties in any sort of media, better than any kind of movie or cartoon that's ever been based on them, better than any other sort of comic or or novelization or whatever, legitimately entertaining in a way that most of the the things that have been created based on Super Mario and, and Zelda just have not been or have not held up. So I would highly recommend seek out the Nintendo Power Mario World and Legend of Zelda Link to the Past comics if you can or just you know find the magazine archives which are available on the Internet Archive and just download you know the 1992 issues of Nintendo Power and they'll all be there. Yeah, and this comic this Mario versus Wario comic is extremely cute and it's kind of neat to see a Mario thing from before Nintendo really kind of had a very like firm grasp on like how they wanted Mario presented in things. I think that like within a couple of years of of this comic, we would have moved to I think around the time that like Mario 64 came out and we got, you know, the Charles Martinet or Martinet version of of Mario's voice happening. That was when the kind of version of Mario you would get anywhere in everything sort of crystallized. But here it's kind of up to interpretation and this Mario He's very talky. He's uh, honestly kind of a jerk without meaning to be. And, you know, it's uh, it's fun. The illustrator of this is Charlie Nozawa. And the story concept is by Kentaro Takakuma. And this is the same duo that did the entire run of the Super Mario World comic that Nintendo Power did the previous year. The Zelda comic, however, uh, that was done by somebody with some some real important work under his belt, a really well-known uh, TV producer and mangaka in Japan, Shotaro Ishinomori. Uh, Ishinomori was responsible for Cyborg 009. He actually started the first Super Sentai series, which is the series that would eventually be adapted into Power Rangers over here in America. Yeah, he's got some really prominent work under his belt. And uh, tragically, he passed away pretty young at the age of 60 in 1998 due to heart failure. But yeah, just a really amazing artist. And again, like his work on The Legend of Zelda, which he was the illustrator and writer of, it's just an amazing comic. It's weird seeing a comic in which Link talks, but it all works really well. It's it's a surprisingly well done comic. I mean, it's still very much a comic for children, but it's not so childish that I don't think an adult could enjoy it as well. Um, it, it's a really good adventure comic. The Mario series is a much more comedic sort of thing. They're both great. I love this sort of take on Mario and Wario here. This idea that like they were childhood friends, but Wario actually kind of perceived Mario as a bully because he was sort of the, this more assertive person. It's it's something you can kind of relate to in a way, right? Like we all kind of know somebody like that. It feels very realistic because the comic starts, Wario sends Mario a letter and Mario's thinking about it and like reminiscing about all the great times he and his childhood buddy Wario had, all the all the different fun things they would do, playing in the garden and playing cowboys and all of this stuff. And he goes off to, to meet up with Wario 
And then we cut to Wario, and Wario remembers all the same things as just times that Mario mercilessly bullied him, and he's going to get revenge on him for that. And it's like, yeah, this definitely feels relatable, actually. I hate to say it. (laughs) From different angles, it feels relatable because kids don't realize how they're treating other kids a lot of the time. Mario encounters a lot of Wario's minions in the form of mostly bosses from Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins for Game Boy, and mostly just accidentally stumbles his way of surviving all of these encounters. Yeah. Usually blissfully unaware that these characters are even antagonistic towards him. I like this version of Mario as kind of like well-meaning, but but sort of like accidentally destructive lucky idiot basically (laughs) yeah basically yeah it's definitely not the same sort of take on mario that we saw in the super mario world comic but again like this felt like a time in which what mario was could be a little bit more elastic you know like he could be the sort of every man who's going to go save the princess in one comic and then this sort of lucky jolly doofus in another one you know (laughs) i wish we could have gotten more of these but i'm i'm guessing that like producing these was probably not cheap and and i think we would see like another mario and wario comic a year later in in the following year's bonus issue so we'll get to that when we get to january 94 so then we've got the power players challenge where people could kind of post their high scores for certain things yeah leaderboards you know i never actually submitted anything for one of these they had a contest later on for mario kart 64 i i got a pretty good time i managed to get like right at one minute and i i submitted that i didn't win the the grand prize whatever it was but i I want a phone card. A phone card. That's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> okay. A very 90s sort of prize, not yep. something that anybody would want nowadays. Uh, then we get the, the incredible Crash Dummies for Game Boy. We will talk a lot more about the Crash Dummies when we get to the Super Nintendo game based around that franchise. But it, what a weird thing. Like, building a toy franchise around these, like, seatbelt safety PSA mascots. It just kind of goes to show you that you could merchandise anything in the 90s if you really tried. Uh, let's see, we've got Battleship for the Game Boy. Uh, did we need to talk about that at all? Not really, it's just Battleship. Um, we've got The Humans for Game Boy, a game that I do not remember at all all which was like a weird caveman platformer for game boy caveman platformers we've talked about this before but there were a lot of those it was the early 90s uh cave explosion cave mania whatever you want to call it uh cave exploitation cave exploitation there we go yeah so this game i i saw actually there was a sega genesis version of this that came out i think back in 92 but i've never heard of this outside of this magazine really i just ran across the name again uh, when i was looking at other stuff about the time period over the last few days. Yeah, I don't know if this is good or not. Uh, It's frankly impossible to tell based on its coverage in Nintendo Power whether it was actually a good game, uh, because they are, like we said before, relentlessly positive about pretty much everything in here. But yeah, it looks all right. It It looks kind of... I'm a little curious about it, actually. The art style for the big banner image of the humans, it... It reminds me of some kind of 90s newspaper comic aesthetic, and I can't quite put my finger on it right now. It does look very newspaper comic, for sure. It's reminding me of a very specific one, but I can't quite remember right now. And no, it's not BC. That would be too easy. There's almost something like Gary Larson-esque about it, isn't there? A little bit, yeah, especially about the dinosaurs they show here. The people don't look anything like 
Gary Larson drawings, but yeah, there is kind of a, a similar sort of delightful gormlessness to them that I can I can see being rem- reminiscent of it. The characters on the second page of that feature uh, do not look anything like the big banner image, and I'm guessing we're just done by Nintendo Power Artists. we get Mega Man 3 for Game Boy. And uh, this is where we kind of get into our big Mega Man feature of the magazine, because not only do we get two Mega Man games, but in between those, we get a really interesting feature where Nintendo had put out a uh, sort of a, I don't want to say casting call, but uh, they were asking for readers to submit artwork, and uh, Capcom was going to take those submissions and possibly make a Robot Master out of one or more of those reader submitted creations. This is something that they had done in Japan for a long time. This was the first time they had solicited young artists in America for new Robot Master designs. And uh, what we won't know for quite a while is that two robot designs from that contest would go on t- to appear in Mega Man 6 for the NES. Now, which which ones were those? They're actually not ones featured here. Okay. So, so we don't see them here, but two Robot Masters that were submitted through the contest ended up winning. They were uh, Nightman and Windman. Those two characters in Mega Man 6 actually came from American designs. The one that I like here a lot that I wish had made it into a real Mega Man game is Optic Man. He is just like a big bloodshot eye with arms and legs and also kind of like a dinosaur tail or something, which I'm not really sure why. I like him a lot, though, and uh, I wish he had seen greater success. A lot of uh, different robot designs here that were submitted by readers of the magazine. Some much better than others. Some that just like Plasma Man that just straight up looks like a Transformer. Yeah, Plasma Man looks exactly like a Transformer. Copter Man, I think, is a little bit too much like an actual Mega Man enemy. Like, I think it just, it doesn't look distinct. He doesn't look distinctive enough. Interesting little designs here, a lot of which were, you know, quite obviously drawn by children, but, you know, still kind of neat. Yeah, and they got a lot of personality. I I like a lot of these. I I think it's neat to get to see them here. And that takes us to uh, coverage of Mega Man 5 for the NES. I was still really into Mega Man, so I was excited to see all of this, even though I don't know if I still had an NES at the time. I had definitely moved on to the SNES by this point. And unfortunately, it's still going to be a little while before we get into any Mega Man stuff on the SNES. Yes, that is true. They got one more whole Mega Man game to go through, I think, on the NES before they they put out Uh, their first Super Nintendo game. Uh, Yeah, Mega Man 6 would be the last one on the NES, and that was sort of really late in the NES's life, and they were trying to sort of squeeze a a few last morsels out of that system by releasing the remodeled NES for like 50 bucks, and then, you know, they still had like some new games for it. I think the, the big two that they were sort of banking on were Mega Man 6 and Star Tropics 2. I remember those being part of an ad campaign that Nintendo had going on around that time. So Mega Man 5 is actually the original NES Mega Man game that I have the most childhood nostalgia for. Really? Because it was the only one. It's the only one I had. Like, it was the one, like, my cousin lent me a copy of it. And then uh, for a variety of circumstances, I never gave it back. And, <laughs> I mean, he didn't, I don't 
know that he really cared that much. But even so, uh, this was the one, though, that I played the most extensively. So it's the one that I have actually, like, I can recognize that, like, Mega Man 2 and 3 are probably better games than this. But this is the one that that ticks my childhood nostalgia buttons. So, yeah, seeing, like, Gravity Man here and you can just, like, kind of hear his stage music in my head. I think this is a good game. It's not probably the one Mega Man game I would recommend people play if they were going to only play one, but I do think it's a good one. I like a lot of these Robot Master designs. I think the stages had some fun gimmicks, and yeah, I think there were, there was some stuff that like maybe didn't work that well in Mega Man 4 that they figured out how to do a lot better here. I don't think there are any bad Mega Man games on the NES, so I mean, you know, any, any Mega Man game is probably not going to ruin your weekend. I've definitely played all six of them. I don't have quite as much um, memories of five and six as I do the the first four. I mean, yeah, these were still really good games. This is the one where Proto Man was the big bad, except, oh, surprise, it was actually Wily the whole time. You had no idea, I'm sure. I'm shocked. I'm so surprised. Even this blowout here on the game in Nintendo Power doesn't try to hide the fact that Dr. Wily is actually the last boss. Like, it, it actually does do a full walkthrough, and then for the Dr. Wily stage, it, it says, you knew it all along. Yep. <laughs> Dr. Wily had to be the source of the problems. Like, yeah, it's true. You didn't actually think that, like, it was going to be different this game, did you? No. The art for this one, I am fairly certain, is just straight from Capcom. I would bet these are all, like, the actual Capcom boss monster designs. But again, you know, uh, Nintendo Power had in the past done their own sort of art for Mega Man, and uh, some of them I thought looked pretty darn cool. Uh, actually, like Mega Man 2 and 3 I thought were really neat. That For the Mega Man 2, they had a very cartoony look to it, and then for the Mega Man 3, there was like this just really shiny, brushed steel look about all of the characters that I thought was really cool. Yeah, this art looks really kind of on model for, for Mega Man, though, in a way that makes me think probably, oh, yeah, this was just art from Capcom. I mean, it's it's good, but the stuff that they had in some of those earlier issues was really neat. Another thing that you know I didn't mention that we won't be seeing because of how late we're starting in the magazine's run is the weird clay-modeled covers that they would occasionally do, where they would just model the characters out of clay and take photographs of them and use those as the covers. Yeah, 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 that's right. I uh, definitely remember them doing that for a Mega Man game. Uh, we move on to RC Pro-Am 2 on the NES. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about that one. No, I don't really have anything to say about this, other than that I assume that, like the first one, this game was probably made by Rare, and they are not mentioned anywhere in here. Oh, I, I see a, a very small copyright at the very top oh, of the first page. yeah, you're right, it is there. It's kind but, of hard to see sometimes. But yeah, they, it's interesting, because they definitely were not at this point, even though, like, Battletoads had come out, uh, they definitely were not really trying to, like, pump up Rare as, like, a star developer for Nintendo stuff that was just like, here's a Nintendo game. Yeah, I think that that all really started with Donkey Kong Country when they put Rare kind of front and center in a lot of their promotional materials around that, which, again, can't wait to start diving into all that, but it will be a little while. Uh, after this, we get the Jetsons for NES, which um, this, I am assuming, is, again, just kind of like stock Hanna-Barbera assets that were probably given to them. 
There's like some metal gears and stuff going on in the background that I think were probably Nintendo Power Illustrated, but uh, that's about it. Metal gears! <laughs> then we get Nestor's Adventures. Oh, God, this made me so uncomfortable. Well, yeah. So, I mean, do we want to get into a little bit of the history of Nestor? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, and then we'll talk about this comic in particular. So, Nestor. This started out as a feature called Howard and Nestor in the very first issue of Nintendo Power, where Howard was Howard Phillips, who was the was sort of a prominent Nintendo employee for Nintendo of America in the early days. He's the one that, you know, the, the sort of urban legend was, you know, convinced Nintendo to not release the original Super Mario 2 and to release the reskin Doki Doki Panic instead, although I, I don't think that that story is quite as simple as that. After he left, Nestor was just kind of left on his own, so they adapted the comic to just be about Nestor. But uh, in those early days, Howard was sort of the more in-control character, and Nestor was just this little punk kid who thought he was this hotshot video game player, and Howard was always just kind of showing him up. Uh, it was very much kind of like a goofus and gallant thing, but it was all about how to be good at video games, basically. Yeah, like you'd often see them just sort of being sucked into the video game worlds that they would be talking about and interacting with the characters in some way. They kept that going with Nestor's Adventures, which would, you know, pare the comic down from two pages to one. And I didn't think this comic was great when it was Howard and Nestor, and it's Nestor's Adventures. I think it's even worse. The art style is okay. I think that um, this sort of more sketchy art style that they used for Nestor's Adventures isn't really as, as pleasing to me as the... What I would say is the more elegant aesthetic of the Howard and Nestor years, but... Again, like I never thought this comic was particularly humorous or interesting, and the Nestor's Adventure comics are, uh, I think, pretty poor and honestly, like yeah. hung on a lot longer than I would have expected. This one-page comic is clearly a tie-in for the Desert Strike Return to the Gulf that we talked about a while back, and seeing like an actual child involved in what is pretty clearly supposed to be like a Middle Eastern war, flying a helicopter around, uh, shooting at people, running away from stuff, not really making me feel great in any way. We talked when we played a few different games, actually, about kind of the, the weird uncomfortableness of how the Operation Desert Storm and everything around it was was sort of sold to American kids as like this, this fun and exciting thing. And there is a little bit of that here uh i would argue actually more here than in the desert strike video game which sort of fictionalizes stuff to a degree that makes it a little less uncomfortable but if you were to just see this eh, there's no sense of that and uh, you know frankly this comic mainly exists as a very thinly veiled way to like kind of explain what you do in that game but yeah i'm not a fan i'm really not a fan of this there's also just like a really cheesy joke in the first thing where he says, thinks he's saying dessert strikes. You like pies? It's Oh, that's what that is. I didn't get that because it's so bad. You really have to think about it for that to even make sense because it's so awkwardly written. Like Dessert strikes does not make any sense. I mean, I guess they thought this is mostly a comic for children and children are dumb. But I don't know. The, the, the writing in these comics is not good. It's usually very awkward to a point where like, actively does not make sense okay like this is a sentence here this is a this is a question what sort of dessert strikes you like pies that's the sentence there's no there's no comma or or a second question mark or anything that is the sentence that sentence is does not that 
Like seriously, you're you're writers. How do you mess that up that bad? Yeah, I don't know. Like, did they forget a punctuation mark there? I don't even know. Anyway, um, Nestor's Adventures is bad, and we're probably only going to brush past those as we go through future issues. But I wanted to get a little bit of the history of Howard and Nestor out of the way. It's weird that Nestor was sort of like this mascot for the magazine for a long time. You know, we'll we'll see him pop up in other features. You know, just as kind of like you know this, this figurehead. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how much longer Nestor's Adventures goes on. They, they finally write him out of the comic and, and only sort of have him pop back in for like specials and things like that. Also, he had a virtual boy game, which is maybe the, the most fitting thing for him. He had, a, he had one of the two bowling games on the virtual boy. So, go Nestor. Much more pleasant than that is uh, the Mario Paint special, which uh, was featured in this magazine. More stuff from Mario Paint showing you how to make like more stamps, kind of giving you little ideas. They've got a very simple Guile versus Chun-Li sort of thing <laughs> on this first page here. What I like about this is that they're showing you how to make like a lot of old NES scenes, which I think is pretty cool. They've got the original Super Mario Brothers along with uh, some music to go with it. They've got the original Legend of Zelda along with some music to go with it. Um, Metroid. Metroid with the music. I remember actually remaking the music uh, from that in an actual Mario Paint program with a friend of mine back in the day, and we were both really surprised at like how much it sounded like the theme from Metroid. I think this whole section is really neat, and I like seeing stuff like this here because it's a really cool way to like get you to explore what this game can do. And it's uh, even got neat little insights into you know. I think there's a there's a point in here where they have a couple of little sort of paraphrased quotes from artists at Nintendo where they're like, oh yeah, we use something similar to this to make sprite graphics for the game. And it's like, yeah, that's cool to kind of feel like you're you're working in a little bit of the medium that the people who actually make these games use to put this stuff together. That's probably a gross over oversimplification, especially for this time period, but I like that. I like that it's it's going sort of beyond just telling you how great the game is to actually showing you cool stuff you can do with it. For the letters to the editor section of this magazine in particular, they had uh, some parents who wrote in saying how much they really appreciated Mario Paint and how it was something that was actually getting their kids to be more creative rather than, you know, just, just playing a game, which is, is pretty neat as well. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with Mario Paint back in the day. Like we said in our review of the game, it's hard to go back to now because, like, there's just so many other programs out there that you would have to be specifically wanting to make something with Mario Paint for some reason for this to be worth getting out now. But but yeah, back in the day, this was so much fun. I sank countless hours into just making stuff with Mario Paint. And uh, with that, we move on to another really fun feature, the top 10 of 1992, where they went into uh, Nintendo Power staff's top 10 games for the SNES, NES, and Game Boy and uh, what I wanted to do here is I wanted to kind of compare their list to our list. And I've uh, basically got our top 10 if I'm only counting games that were released in 1992. So uh, we're going to take a look here. So for Nintendo Power's list, 
their top ten, at number one, they've got Street Fighter Two World Warrior, which is also our number one. They've got The Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past at number two, which is also our number two. They've got, let's see, I think Contra 3. Yes, Contra 3 is their number three, yeah. Contra 3 is our number nine. Then they've got Super Star Wars at number four, which is not in our top ten. They've got Mario Paint at number five, which I also don't believe is in our top ten. Yeah, I think that one just missed out. They've got Super Mario Kart at number six. We've got Super Mario Kart at number eight. They do not have Top Gear on their list, which is number seven for us. Interesting. TMNT4, Turtles in Time. I'm surprised to see it this low, to be honest, at number seven. But it is such an amazing game that it made it all the way up to number three on our list. Out of this world at number eight, I feel very justified now that they also have Out of This World in their top ten. Most definitely. Yeah, Out of This World is actually number four for us if we take out all the 1991 games, so we put it quite a bit higher, but I feel seen. I feel justified now that we put that so high. NCAA Basketball, number nine, that one's not on our list. It's a pretty highly ranked game, though, for us. Yeah, I think it might be the highest rated sports game for us. Yeah, pure sports, it's not like, you know, motorsports or something. Uh, Yeah, I think it is. And then they've got Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally at number 10, which is a game that I would argue they've only got there because they wanted something to compare Sonic the Hedgehog to. Hold up their own Sonic the Hedgehog, say, look... You don't need a Sega Genesis because we basically have Sonic right here. It's Sonic in in some basic ways as ter- in terms of, of how speed works in it, but not in any of the, the ways that you would want it to be similar, really. First of all, I'm not as big into Sonic as a lot of people are, so that, that's not even an aesthetic that I would ever want to try and, you know, go for. But even I can recognize that, like, yeah, Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally is a pale comparison to what Sonic the Hedgehog actually is. Yeah, I do think that there's some insecurity in this magazine about the competition and maybe about stuff the competition was succeeding at that that Nintendo wasn't really at this point. And I think this thing here with having Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally be in the top 10 is is a pretty big demonstration of that. It's actually the only point in the magazine where Sonic is referenced by name, which is interesting. I think they were definitely going for, yeah, look, this is our Sonic. You don't need the other system at all because we've got uh, a game where an animal goes fast as well. Yep, that's all you need. Uh, I'm not going to go through the entire top tens of the other systems, but uh, maybe just like the top fives. Uh, for Game Boy, we've got Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins, amazing game. I think we talked about that one a little bit with Willie and Ginger last week. So. Uh, we did, yeah. Wonderful game. Yeah, fantastic game. Mega Man 2 is number two. Yeah, those Mega Man games on Game Boy are all right. They're all right, yeah. I think that it's funny here that they specifically point out how big the sprites are as a positive, which um, if any of... You folks out there have watched any of Jeremy Parrish's Game Boy Works videos. He makes a pretty solid argument that you really want small sprites that are easy to maneuver around a screen on a Game Boy game instead of large sprites. I think I agree with that pretty pretty strongly, so not sure I really agree there, but I think the Game Boy Mega Man games are okay. Number three, we got Bionic Commando. Number four, Tiny Toon Adventures, Bab's Big Break. And number five, Gradius, The Interstellar Assault. And then for the NES, uh, we got Mega Man again. Mega Man 4 is number one. Then we've got Darkwing Duck at number two. Lemmings at number three, which uh, was not on their top ten for the SNES, but I believe is number ten on ours. That's true. They justify that here by saying that even though there is a Super Nintendo version, they think that the 8-bit version is just as good and that that is actually more impressive because it doesn't have as good of graphics and it's still a good game which you know 
Good argument. I mean, fair enough. You don't need to play Lemmings on the SNES. You could play it on the NES and get more or less the same experience. I mean, I, you know, I understand that. TMNT 3, The Manhattan Project at number four. I remember that being a really fun game. I, I remember uh, playing that with friends a lot. That one was really enjoyable. And uh, number five is Rampart. That does remind me that was something we neglected to talk about is uh, we did say in our last episode where we talked with the Grand Rapidians that we were going to relitigate some games. We are still working on a way for us to play some games co-op, so we will have to kick that can down the road a little bit. We will still reevaluate those games eventually, uh, those games being Cubert 3, Rampart, and uh, Smash TV. But uh, we're not going to do them just yet because we're still working out the kinks there. Also, one other thing about their list, uh, Star Trek is at number six for the NES. That's an interesting choice. I've never played that Star Trek game. I don't know anything about it, but it sounds like maybe maybe you think it's not perhaps what you would have put on this list. I've never played it either. It's just something that I would not have expected. It's not a game that I ever really hear people talking about uh, really enthusiastically or fondly or even at all, to be honest. Star Trek on NES, I mean, when's the last time somebody even mentioned that to you no so one thing on here that i want to point out that i think is really interesting is their number seven game on the nes list is little samson which i i think is now one of the most like sought after and expensive nes cards right I think it might be. So yeah, y'all should have listened to Nintendo Power back in the day and picked up a copy of that. But yeah, it's funny to see a game that is now like kind of a rarity and a historical curiosity uh, just on here. It's just like, oh yeah, this is a good game that came out this year. (laughs) Not a lot of people bought it because there was a significant amount of folks who had already moved on to the Super NES. I would have been one of them. Um, after that, we get a, a pretty lengthy article about just kind of uh, the FX chip, the state of games and technology in general. This was one of the most interesting parts of the magazine to me, personally. It feels completely different from anything else in the magazine. It feels more grown-up sounding. Like, it feels more like something you'd read in, like, a tech magazine, like, um, you know, Wired, than anything else here that feels much more specifically pitched to kids. And what it does, for one thing, is it explains what 3D graphics are. It explains what polygons are and why they're how they're different from sprites and how you can use them differently in a game. And it explains sort of what the Super FX chip does in terms of the extra math it can do in addition to what the, the Super Nintendo CPU can do to kind of make these graphics possible on, on the Super Nintendo. And it also has a lengthy discussion of how CD-ROMs work. And it even talks in, in pretty good depth for, for this magazine, at least, about some completely non-Nintendo games like The Seventh Guest. The Seventh Guest is the thing that it uses as sort of its go-to example for, for CD-ROM-based games. And it's interesting here because while there is a lot of factual information in this that's really interesting to see, it also has a pretty particular slant to it. And part of it is that it, it kind of does overstate the abilities of the Super FX chip quite a bit in in terms of like what it is capable of. And I think it says that it could render like an endless number of sprites, which that's not true. But the part about the CD-ROM games is interesting because it's actually kind of trying to present most of the negatives about CD-ROM games, you know, load times. And well, you know, you can't really put that much video that's like high quality on them. And and also they're very expensive to make uh, compared to cartridge games. 
And all of this seems to be uh, basically centered around telling you you don't need a CD-ROM system, which conveniently Nintendo is not making one of those right now. Actually, really quick, on that point, though, the previous issue to this actually was talking about a CD-ROM add-on. There's just like a really small blurb in the letters to the editor section. Well, no, no, it is actually mentioned here as well. The CD-ROM add-on for the Super Nintendo is mentioned here, but it's they, they say that it's a ways away. And that the important thing you should keep in mind about it is that what it's going to do is make your Super Nintendo experience better. The Super Nintendo is already the best place to play games, but with a CD-ROM, it's going to be even better. If you just got a system that just had a CD-ROM, that's no guarantee that that the games on it will be better than what you're playing right now. It's it's really interesting to see something that is so much more technical here, also coupled with what I think is pretty much like the strongest like sales pitch part of the magazine that that it has. Like beyond just telling you the games are great, it is telling you specifically why what Nintendo has chosen to do with technology and how it's chosen to proceed in the future is the right way to go. A little insidious, frankly, but a pretty cool article to read sort of in retrospect. I, one thing I do think is really funny here is that it mentions this um, Philips CDI game called Escape from Cyber City as like the best example of what you can do with a CD-ROM game right now. And I just watched somebody on a stream play that game like a few days ago, uh, just out of real total happenstance. Uh, it is this dreadful kind of Dragon's Lair style game that takes like footage from one of the Galaxy Express 3.9 movies and turns it into a series of incredibly unforgiving like shooting galleries and things where you have to make split second decisions otherwise you die i don't think even for 92 that game was a game that i would recommend to people as like a game that you know has has a good uh a good read on what uh, you know uh, you can do with a cd-rom but yeah, it's weird that that specific game gets is, is one of the only other ones aside from the seventh guest and Sherlock Holmes consulting detective that gets a shout out here. So this article was likely written while a lot of wild things were going on behind the scenes at Nintendo and other companies, which would have some pretty drastic effects on the future of the video game industry. We missed a lot of that context in our conversation, but I wanted to try and fill in some of those gaps. By 1993, the Nintendo-Sony relationship, which had Sony making a CD-ROM add-on for the SNES that would eventually turn into the Sony PlayStation, had already soured. The infamous CES show had already occurred, and uh, the Philips deal was still going on, but that whole thing was starting to get pushed back further. Just my own speculation, but I would say it's probably anyone's guess as to how likely either party still believed that the Philips SNES CD-ROM would ever see the light of day. Given that context, I think it makes sense why Nintendo Power would pen this article that seems to be simultaneously telling people to anticipate a SNES CD-ROM and to not be too enamored with the technology. Another interesting note is that the reason this article referenced the seventh guest specifically is that it was likely slated to be a SNES CD-ROM game. 
uh, one of the few, possibly only games that Nintendo ever seriously considered for the system before this whole project was scrapped. There is a lot going on in this whole story involving Nintendo and Sony and Philips that's often misreported, not to mention a lot of stuff that's probably just still being kept secret. Uh, I would recommend, if you're interested in learning more about this, check out the fantastic Kotaku article by Chris Kohler entitled The Weird History of the Super NES CD-ROM, Nintendo's Most Notorious Vaporware. It's funny them talking about how much more expensive CD-ROM games are to cartridges. Yeah, because that's the opposite of the truth. There's a wild thing here where it says that some PC CD-ROM games uh, retail for close to $100. And I can't imagine that was ever true. But definitely by the time of like the PlayStation and the N64, one of the big benefits of the PlayStation was that they could sell new games for like $40 because it was so cheap to print the CDs. Right. Yeah, that was a real big feather in Sony's cap at that point. You know, there's there's some other really strange excerpts here. Like, okay, talking about, you know, like CD-ROM compared to LaserDisc. The fact is that a single CD-ROM can only store 78 minutes of audio or only five minutes of LaserDisc quality video. Even if the video is only partial screen and less than full motion, say 10 to 15 frames per second, you can squeeze only about 90 minutes of condensed video onto a disc. Now, I mean, like, granted, like, they're not wrong about the highly condensed part of that because, yeah, like, a lot of those early CD-ROM games were pretty rough, but only 90 minutes. Like, how long did you need it to be? Like, yeah, right? That's a lot of footage. <laughs> I know that this was a time when, like, full motion video was more the thing than CG, but it does seem like that's an awful lot of video to be putting in your game in the first place, especially when you compare it to anything that's on the Super Nintendo and how much space non-interactive proto-cutscenes take up in them. It doesn't seem like you would need even remotely close to that for it, so... This article is a fascinating time capsule, and I would recommend that, like, if you don't read anything else from this magazine, give this article a read, because it's it's really it's really a strange thing. Um, interesting article. Then we get uh, another thing that's pretty interesting, a little papercraft R-Wing, which uh, yeah. is funny because, you know, Star Fox wouldn't be out for a while. But I mean, I guess they just got done talking about the FX chip. Yeah, man, they're they're hyping it. This is the hype train for, for Star Fox right here. So, you know, we've talked about the FX chip before in the context of talking about some of our games because there had been apparently talks about putting the FX chip in certain games before Star Fox is, is you know, what my research would suggest anyway. Which, you know, I, I didn't think could have possibly been true, but given that, you know, we are on the cusp of seeing Star Fox come out, maybe that was a potential thing on the table. I didn't realize Star Fox was coming up so soon when we when we played that game, whatever it was. It, it makes it seem a lot more plausible, for sure. So anyway, um, if you want to cut out a papercraft R-Wing, you can do that. I don't think I ever actually bothered doing it. it Star Fox wasn't really a thing that appealed to me all that much uh, back then. Um, after that, we get behind the scenes at Nintendo, which is uh, them talking about their uh, game evaluation team. And uh, this is doing a bit of a casting call here for people in Seattle who wanted to join, including children, who is basically like focus groups for upcoming games. I'm going to say I think this whole thing is a little bit insidious. I don't know. I mean, I guess as a kid, you could have said, hey, I got to play this game early. I, I don't really know that I think there's that much that's terribly wrong with this. I mean, it's talking about basically bringing kids in to do like a two hour focus group session 
where they play different games for 30 minutes and people like, you know, kind of watch how they're reacting to it. They explain here kind of how the like evaluation scorecard that I guess is actually used by the magazine here, in addition to the, the focus groups for rating games goes. And, you know, I feel like a lot of companies were probably doing something like this. I think Nintendo had an unusual opportunity to kind of explain how this process works and get interested parties to contact them about it through this magazine. So, you know, I, I don't, feel like it's that weird or bad yeah it even gives you a, a a version of the scorecard that you can use to evaluate games yourself just like they do it's an interesting look behind the scenes for a company that very rarely does that and usually keeps all that stuff locked down after that we get the best of classified information they give you the 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 biggest secrets from last year's issues of nintendo power out of those issues uh editions of classified information so we get some stuff from Super Mario World. We get the code that turns Street Fighter 2 basically into the championship edition. So you can <laughs> do mirror matches and all that. You've got something for baseball for some reason. The Konami code. Of course, we've got the Konami code in there. Gotta have it. Gotta have the Konami code. The baseball one stood out to me just because it was strange to see it in here. Specifically, there's like a 99 lives code for it. I don't know that I would want to play baseball enough to spend 99 lives, you know? My thoughts exactly, yeah. We get a nice little spread of some Super Mario Land 2 six golden coins maps, maps for secret stages in the game that did not show up in Nintendo Power's original coverage of the game. So that's kind of neat. Again, this is a bonus issue, so we're getting, you know, some some secret stuff. These are the secret levels. Then we get the player's poll uh, that I alluded to earlier. So every issue, Nintendo Power would have these polls where not only would they be able to get information about, you know, what features people do and don't like about the magazine, they'd also be able to see what their readers are playing, which is information they would end up using for the, the player's pulse section where they would kind of rank all the games that were popular amongst their readers and to incentivize people to actually send these in which is admittedly something i rarely ever did they would always have contests so anytime you submitted one of these you'd be entered into a raffle to win that month's prize which sometimes the prizes were cooler than other times here you could win a trip to san francisco to see the san jose sharks take on the la kings <laughs> It was probably exciting to somebody. That is definitely not one that would have incentivized me to uh, to do that. But anyway, so then we see the uh, top 20. And again, this is where they, they would use that information from the players' polls to present top 20, I guess, uh, games for each system. Currently, Street Fighter 2, The World Warrior, is in number one for the Super NES. Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past is number two, and Super Mario Kart is number three. Um, these games would tend to hang on for a while because for the really big releases that people would pick up, you know, this is a time when people would just have to kind of play the same game for long periods of time because they were expensive and you didn't always get a new game until, you know, like next Christmas or your birthday. So right. Yeah. To demonstrate that whole thing for if you look at the Game Boy section, their number two game is Super Mario Land, which uh, has now been on that list for it says right here, 28 months. Super Mario Brothers 3 has been at the top of the NES list and has been on that list for 39 months, mm -hmm. which is The Legend of Zelda is number three for NES. 52 months. Did anything ever take it 
that much further down. I feel like there were not that many new NES games that could have pushed it down further at this point, if, if nothing had by now. I mean, we will definitely keep an eye on this because I think this is going to be a really interesting thing to keep looking at month after month as we go through these issues. Like right now, we've still got, you know, like Battletoads at number four, the original Final Fantasy at number five, Mega Man 3 is at number 10, Mario 2 at 11, Metroid is at 12. And I think this is another thing where this whole concept of hidden gems on the NES comes from because, again, you know, people would stick with the same games for long periods of time and a lot of things would get overlooked. I mean, you know, both the Super NES and the NES have libraries of over 700 games. How many of those were really well-known? Taking it as a percentage, you know, like how many of those games would end up on these top 20 lists in Nintendo Power? Yeah, you're not seeing a Clash at Demon Head uh, or a Blaster Master on this this top 20 for the NES, are no, you? No, I would bet Blaster Master would have been on that Blaster list. Blaster Master almost certainly was on here at some point, but yeah. No, like one of the more recent games here, Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse, is actually just uh, breaking in at number 20 on the Super NES list. Also, The Simpsons' Bart's Nightmare is at number 8. Oh, those poor kids. Bart versus the World, which is actually one of the lesser Bart games for the NES, is, <laughs> uh, is number 19 on that list, so... Yeah, the the brand will get you a ways, I think. The the branding will will do that. Then we've got the now playing. Some of these are games that, like we said, we'll be talking about in the next couple months. Others are games we've already talked about, and others still, like Equinox, are not coming out for a long time. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting about this section is that it does contain like a plus and minus column for each game, which is the only place in the magazine, I think, where you'll see them say anything even kind of negative about any of these games. And I think this was the compromise when this section was no longer George and Rob's now playing and just became now playing. You didn't have people sort of treating this like a review section. And, and I don't see the disclaimer here about these are the opinions of the reviewers and not necessarily those of Nintendo Power like you had with the George and Rob version of this feature. I think that by giving a merit and a demerit, you know, or like talking about one positive feature and one negative feature is just kind of the way of still giving that appearance of being balanced without being overly negative about any one game so as to, you know, potentially damage your relationship with that company. That makes sense. Yeah, I can I can see that. Which, again, makes me wonder even more. Would they have pulled that feature regardless of one of those two leaving or would they have tried to keep it going? I don't know. They did say in Nintendo Power's 100 issue special that George and Rob was reader's least favorite feature. Again, I don't know if that's just them kind of covering for this or if that really was the case. Well, you know, it's it's probably just them covering for it because as everybody knows, gamers are very good at taking criticism for games they like. I'm sure that everybody was like totally fine totally good with a magazine feature in Nintendo Power where where they would sometimes be marginally critical of of the games. I'll just leave it at that. But one thing that I do think is interesting here is that a lot of these or not a lot of these some of these do actually list the suggested retail price for the games in question, in addition to giving you information about them. And it really puts some stuff into perspective for me to know that Chuck Rock is the way it is, and you would have been expecting to pay $54.99 for that game in, in 1992, or $64.95 for Gods. 
not that Gods is the worst game we've ever played, but the idea of spending nearly $70 for a cartridge that contained it is sort of incredible to me, honestly. Or, I mean, like, Wordtress, which, I mean, you know, say what you will about it, but, I mean, it's a pretty slight game, really. 55 bucks for that one. And, and I think that, you know, there is this sort of idea that, like, games have always been 50 bucks, but, like, no, like, a lot of cartridge-based games, especially around this time, were $50 or more. You know, like, some were 60 some were more than 60 And I think as we get into the N64 era, those prices go up even more. I think some of those might have been like as much as seventy five dollars. Yeah, for for some of those games, like cartridges were pretty expensive. Like we were saying before, with the PlayStation games being a lot cheaper because they were cheaper to make was a big deal until you know everyone just decided, well, a video game costs fifty dollars, and then a video game costs sixty dollars, and now I guess going forward, a video game might cost seventy dollars. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know we'll see. Uh, We'll see how how high it goes. Also, some of the the, the negatives and positives that they have about these games are uh, are kind of interesting. Like for Chuck Rock, the graphics and animation are super. Disagree, especially many of the outrageously weird enemies. Uh, nah, yeah. Gameplay is very basic. Jump and bump levels and bosses. I mean, yeah, I I, I think I agree with them there. So uh, games that we can probably look forward to in the next couple months: uh, Sonic Blast Man, Spin Dizzy World, Shanghai 2, The Brainies. And I think that's it. The rest of these, it looks like, are games that we've already talked about. Or Equinox, which we won't be talking about for a really long time. So that is uh, now playing for other systems. We've got things like Mega Man 5, Goal 2, The Jetsons, Rocky and Bullwinkle and Friends on the NES, and, uh, oh, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Uh, and then uh, for Game Boy, we got the Crash Test Dummies, mm-hmm. uh, Battleship, Speedball 2, Xenon 2, and The Humans. Uh, and then uh, we get into the final feature, which is Pack Watch. This is a uh, sort of upcoming games for various systems, many of which are going to be talked about in upcoming issues of Nintendo Power. We've got The Wizard of Oz, which uh, I feel like that game is not very good from what I've heard. But uh, that's we'll, what I've also heard. Yeah, we'll probably know before too long. Uh, the Lost Vikings, which is quite good. Yes. Uh, and I, I can't wait to talk about that one. High Tech Expressions made a Tom and Jerry game on the SNES for some reason. We've got Ultima, which I think is going to be kind of a chore for us. Probably, yeah. Let's see, we've got Zelda for Game Boy. Um, which which is, does not, clearly does not have a name at this point. Yeah, but I'm guessing this is Link's Awakening, right? It's got to be Link's Awakening, yeah. Uh, we got Darkwing Duck and Alien 3 for Game Boy. Alien 3, that's that's an interesting one for Game it Boy. It is, yeah. Got some games for the NES that I'm not even aware of, like Rollerblade Racer and Zen Intergalactic Ninja. I'm not familiar with those two. I feel like I've seen somebody on a stream play Rollerblade Racer. Uh, not a great game. Uh, another high-tech expressions game, I think, and it's pretty rough. Yeah, we'll be doing a deep dive into high-tech expressions pretty soon, I think. And uh, yeah, because their, their story ends... Not too much longer from where we are right now. We've also just got some other previews here, just some screenshots of things like Super Tiny Toon, which I, I'm guessing got a, a different name. I think that's got to be the game that ended up being called Buster Busts Loose, which is really good, actually. I'm excited to get to that one. We also have the uh, Super Nintendo American Gladiators game, which is not great, but infinitely better than the NES one. Yes. Finally, we have uh, the next issue, which is going to be about Cybernator and Pugsley's Scavenger Hunt. So that ought to be interesting. And then uh, also because it's a bonus issue, Nintendo Power also leaves us with some cool decals that you can stick on your controllers. I definitely did this back in the day. And it's made me think, you know, I've got like this die cutter. I've got the ability to make stickers. We could make our own like Snescapades branded 
Super Nintendo controller decals. Maybe look forward to that in the future, folks. I really like this controller decal that's got the moon on one side and the Earth with a little space station on the other side. I know I stuck that one on a controller at some point. I don't know if I've still got that controller. I don't think I do. Um, when I when I post this to Twitter, uh, leave a comment if that is something you would enjoy. Uh, would, uh, you know, custom Snescapades controller decals. That's pretty much it. That's the magazine, yeah. That's going to do it for January 93. Yeah, I'm really excited to be moving forward finally and, and getting a look at some new games. Yes, absolutely. And that being said, what are we going to be looking at on our next episode, which will be back to normal? We'll be back to us playing games and talking about them and ranking them on our list. So next time, uh, because we are just doing this by the month from here on out, we're not going to transition between months in uh, in the middle of an episode, and there are only four games for 1993, so we're actually just going to break them up into twos here. So in the next episode, we are going to be talking about California Games 2, and we are going to be talking about Power Moves, the, the most powerful of moves. Uh, those moves are going to be so powerful, they're going to... They're going to break all your ears when we even talk about them. Look forward to your ears being broken by the moves that are powerful. All right. Hope you all liked this. Um, I really enjoyed having an excuse to talk about Nintendo Power and having an excuse to read through the magazine again. I, I had a lot of fun. I yeah. hope you guys enjoyed this as well. You know, feel free to, to download these yourselves and follow along if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, in fact, given the state of scans of old magazines on the Internet, go ahead and, and just download them and enjoy them uh, while you can, because who knows if they're going to be copyright struck at some point. And uh, that would be a real shame because these are a really cool resource for kind of ephemeral part of games history. I enjoyed this a lot and I'm excited to do this again every time we start a new month. Yeah, me too. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Steampunk Blank. I'm Eddie Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoax.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.